from WNYC in New York. It's America, Are We Ready? Tonight, America, Are We Ready to Finish Counting the Votes? Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. They have to finish at some point. And Joe Biden is just six electoral votes from victory, according to multiple news organization election desks, including Fox News. But with a few states still too close to call, we're entering a new phase of the presidential election. The Trump campaign is filing multiple lawsuits aimed at stopping or overturning the counts in several states. Tonight, we'll get the latest numbers, hear the legal and political arguments, and try to be clear about where things stand. And we'll take your calls. America, are we ready to finish counting the votes? First, the latest news. From WNYC in New York, this is America. Are we ready this hour? Are we ready to finish counting the votes? They might be almost finished. Most news organizations have Biden just six electoral votes shy of winning the election, with Nevada leaning his way. That would put him over the top if he gets that one. Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania remain too close to call, but are trending toward Trump. Anything could still happen, but Biden seems to have a clear path as of now. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. Thank you for joining us tonight. Then there are lawsuits being filed by the Trump campaign today, a real X factor that we will explain to the best of our ability. And there is just how divided the election reveals the country to be. Biden may win the White House. He decisively won the popular vote. But if Democrats wanted a national consensus that it's time to repudiate Trump, an outcome way different than in 2016 based on how he's governed, they don't seem to have gotten that. We'll open the phones for your night two questions and comments shortly. We have two guests, Mirna Perez, director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program, and Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and author of the forthcoming Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. You might remember she was also the moderator for the vice presidential debate last month. Mirna and Susan, thanks for coming on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Thank you for having us. Hey, Brian, it's great to be with you. Susan, lawsuits aside, we'll get to the lawsuits. How close is this to being over in the initial count? I, th- I think we're hours away from it being over. Uh, I think just, we are likely... Just hours? Seriously, just, just hours? Just hours, yeah. Of course, I'm often wrong, uh, but I'm rarely in doubt. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that it is likely that tomorrow uh, Joe Biden will reach 270. Uh, and with that, uh, enough to claim the presidency. You know, we first thought, and we said on this program last night, that Georgia and North Carolina could decide the race early. The polls closed early on the East Coast, and they were allowed to count their mail-in ballots early, unlike Pennsylvania. If Biden had won there, it could have been over. But here we are more than 24 hours later, and they're both among the final five states still outstanding, according to most of the networks. Why can't they call Georgia and North Carolina even still? Well, because they're still counting votes uh, and because the outcome is close enough that you can't be certain that the new votes that you count won't change the outcome. Georgia is very close. The Biden folks have not given up on winning Georgia. North Carolina is more than a stretch uh, for the Biden folks. The Trump folks feel better about North Carolina. Pennsylvania, I tell you, while President Trump has a lead in Pennsylvania, it's getting 
smaller and there is uh, there are a lot of votes still out in Pennsylvania. So that could also go Biden's way. But, you know, if, if Nevada goes Biden's way tomorrow, uh, then the others are uh, icing on the cake uh, because you only need to get to 270 and you're the new president of the United States. And one other state before we bring in Myrna on the lawsuits and I give out the phone number for listeners, um, Arizona. I think I said when we were starting off that most news organizations have called Arizona for mm -hmm. Joe Biden. I think that's actually a little overstating it. We know that Fox and the AP have called Arizona for Biden, but at least CNN and MSNBC have not. So what's the uncertainty in Arizona? So that's a that's a great question, because usually the AP is the most conservative of news organizations in calling a state. They called Arizona at about three o'clock this morning, 3 a.m. this morning. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've been out there. They've been out there some time. USA Today, we go by the AP call. Um, and uh, so in our mind, Arizona has gone to Joe Biden. I don't I don't know why some of the networks have not called Arizona. Do you know why? I don't know exactly what the difference is. I mean, I know the Trump campaign is arguing that the percentages in some parts of the state of the vote that Trump has gotten so far there indicate that when the rest of the votes come in from those parts of the state, he will do better uh, than the the margin of victory at the moment for um, for Joe Biden. But I guess that that remains to be seen. Listeners. We will leave that uncertainty uncertain, appropriate for now. And we can take your vote counting and legal challenge questions at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. You can also tweet your questions and comments at me, at Brian Lehrer, B-R-I-A-N-L-E-H-R-E-R, -E -E at Brian Lehrer. If you want to tweet a question or a comment or the phone number again, 844 844- 745 talk. There are many moving parts right now in a handful of states. What can our guests clarify for you? 844-745-TALK. You can also make a comment. Who are we as a nation after this mixed result? I know our guests have some thoughts on that. Who are we as a nation? However, it turns out one tweet we've already gotten is just my question is WTF. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you for that tweet. Um, so who are, who are we, folks, as a nation right now? And anything you want clarified by our guests about the count or the legal strategies, 844-745-8255. Susan Page from USA Today and Mirna Perez from the Brennan Center. Mira, let's start looking at the lawsuits in Pennsylvania, which is still being counted, not called. And in Michigan, declared by the networks for Biden, the Trump campaign is claiming that there hasn't been meaningful access by poll watchers who want to see the ballots that are being validated. You probably have an opinion at the Brennan Center, but can you first explain the case as best you can for the listeners? Well, there's actually a bunch of cases, and they just filed one in Georgia about an hour ago. And... The president moved to intervene in a case that's before the Supreme Court involving Pennsylvania. I think the upshot is that these cases are frivolous. Um, we don't expect courts to take them seriously. Um, and in some cases, 
they are talking about a very, very small number of ballots. So, for example, um, there the a federal judge was tied up for a couple of hours today to um, hear the uh, challengers come in claiming uh, a, a, a dispute over how 93 ballots were being cast. Um, I think at this point in time, we're seeing a lot of delaying tactics um, and a lot of out there legal theories. Um, and obviously, the court system is going to have to resolve them and, and, and review them. But I would be very, very skeptical if any of them got the kind hmm. of legs um, that would require um, this decision getting decided by the court. A lot of things would have to come into play. Like it would have to be a state that had a margin of error or a margin that was, uh, that Small was close enough. to the number of yeah. ballots that were... Right that were being involved. And but, so far, those math, that math is not adding up. So I think it's a distraction and a nuisance more than it is um, an attempt to, to throw this uh, election to the courts. Right. Well, obviously, the Trump campaign disagrees. And let me follow up. Here's a clip in which I guess they're making a case that this is broad-based, uh, at least in the case of Pennsylvania. It's a clip of a Republican poll watcher in Philadelphia named Jeremy Mercer in an appearance with Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani this afternoon announcing some of these suits. Mercer is describing how far away he was from being able to see details of any of the ballots, not just a small number of ballots, any of the ballots, as they were being counted and, of course, declared valid uh, in the process at the polling place where he was volunteering. Listen. Hundreds, uh, at least 100 feet away from open ballots that go back out of our sight. We can't see them. We don't know what's happening to them. Um, it's just uh, there's no way for us to meaningfully observe the process from where they have us. Could you tell us how many ballots approximately went through that process that you had no chance to observe? Based on the counts that we've heard, it's about 125,000, maybe more. Well, so that should be deducted from the count. Those are those are ballots that were counted in violation of the law without an observation. Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani today with poll watcher Jeremy Mercer. Uh, Mirna, I, 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 you know, I'm sure you don't think they have. Yeah. I mean, if what he describes is true and only applied to Republicans, why don't they have a case? Okay. well, one, that's not the allegation um, that uh, this was only applying to certain people. Um, and two, there is not a claim that any of these ballots were fraudulent, right? There's not a claim that anybody was casting ballots that they weren't supposed to be casting, that people who weren't supposed to be voting were supposed to be voting. They're not asking for ballots to be thrown out. They're asking for the count to be delayed um, until uh, the process has changed. And it is disputed that, uh, that the facts are as they are uh, being presented. But I think what is really, really important, and I know this because of our involvement in many of the lawsuits in Pennsylvania, is that there is a conflation of the word fraud with um, processes that they don't like or processes that they think are um, inconsistent with state law. Fraud means that a voter intended to disrupt 
the election by casting a ballot that they are not supposed to be casting. And by throwing out this term of fraud, um, it is an attempt to try and cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election. They're not actually coming up with any evidence saying that people are casting ballots that shouldn't be. They haven't. They haven't been able to come up with any of that. And instead of saying, hey, we want to improve transparency or we want to improve the process and the like, um, they're not doing that. And I think mm -hmm. you can glean from these kinds of conclusions what the outcome is. Like we can all agree, I think, that we want our uh, counting processes to be uh, transparent and that we want their people to be able to be held accountable. But that's not the same thing as arguing that these ballots are fraudulent. And when you heard the lawyer, he was saying that those ballots should be discounted. He's talking about voters who did nothing wrong having their ballots not get counted because he's alleging that somebody violated a process. Right. So they will have to convince a judge that if the poll watching could not be done effectively, then none of those ballots should count, even if there are no particular allegations of fraud against any particular voter or any particular um, ballot counter. And I guess that's the list. You know, uh, it's, very, it's very obvious that that is a strategy because they we're seeing these kinds of claims being, uh, these kinds of lawsuits being filed in Michigan and in Georgia and Pennsylvania. So and, clearly someone has a campaign. And I have strategy. to jump in because we have to take a break, but we'll continue in a minute. This is America. Are we ready? From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? This hour, are we ready to finish counting the votes? I'm Brian Lehrer with Myrna Perez, director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program, and Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. And let's take our first phone caller, Tyler in Southwest Minnesota. You're on America, Are We Ready? Hi, Tyler. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Wondering, uh, what's the holdup with Nevada? What's uh, taking so long to get that count in? Susan, do you know? Well, they're they're counting uh, the mail-in ballots, and as you know, states had different rules about when they could start start counting those. Um, we know that the mail-in. We know two things about these mail-in ballots. We know where they're from. They're from Clark County, down around Las Vegas. That's a Democratic-leaning area. We also know that Democrats were much more more likely to cast mail-in ballots. And Republicans are much more likely to go in person to vote. And that's why we think that this very narrow edge in Nevada is going to get wider to Biden's benefit and put him over the top. We don't know that's for sure that's going to be true. You know, uh, Biden is still short of 270. If Trump takes everything that's out there, uh, he could still win the presidency. But that is becoming a longer and longer shot as more states get taken off the board. Here's another caller from Minnesota with another question about Nevada. And it's Kevin in Austin, Minnesota. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Kevin. Kelvin, I'm sorry. Uh, hello. Hi. Hey, hey yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, just following up, actually, on the Nevada. Um, I was actually out in Nevada um, with an, an individual that uh, received an unsolicited ballot. Um, and I know, basically, just reading online, it says that um, they, the state of Nevada sent out ballots to everybody um, supposedly he was registered, but this individual never actually registered uh, as a voter, never even voted um, in the state of Nevada before. 
And my question is, um, you know, with, with obviously with COVID-19, that is why, um, you know, the state of Nevada chose to do that. But, um, you know, being such a tight um, state right now and and really the difference in the election, it ultimately could be. Uh, I know Trump currently has a Supreme Court challenge in the state of Nevada. I was just wanting the legal experts to, um, you know, analyze that, you know, the details of what's going on in Nevada. Uh, again, sending out the unsolicited ballots uh, to um, just looked online, 1.7 million people, um, and, and again, possibly to individuals that, that uh, aren't even registered. Um, sure. And again, some more details on that. And then um, ultimately, um, what is that court challenge by Trump? If you could uh, tell the audience. Thank you. Kelvin, thank you very much. So, of course, first of all, we can't validate that story that any particular unregistered voter was sent to ballot. And I haven't heard of a challenge regarding Nevada at the Supreme Court. So, Myrna, if that's a real thing, let us know. Right, right. But what, what if that well, did happen with a voter? Uh, is that going to put the Nevada count at risk of being thrown out? Well, the, the first thing that I want to say is that it is it would be I don't understand how that could happen, because in order for uh, a person to get a a real ballot, they need to be registered, right? They, and, and, and the caller said that their friend was not even registered. So there's no way the state would know who to send it to, um, whether or not the person was over 18. Um, maybe, uh, maybe it was a political party or a GOTV group that was sending out sample ballots to inspire people, or maybe it was a ballot application, but I find it very um, hard to believe that it was an actual ballot um, because it it can't get counted if it's cast by a person that's not registered. They wouldn't have a they wouldn't have a file or a record to be able to send it to and then to be able to record it when it got back. There were a series of cases in Nevada involving um, a, a public records request um, and involving something along the lines of what we've been talking about in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia, where uh, folks wanted to be able to observe at a closer distance their um, the the matching of signatures, and at this point in time, it's uh, it, there's not court activity. That court activity, I suspect, will resume if this becomes um, a closer issue. But uh, as I was saying earlier, we are seeing a concerted campaign to try and uh, uh, delay the vote, to try and cast these these uh, laws or to file these lawsuits on the basis of. Uh, transparency and on the basis of being able to observe, but what we're not hearing is that anybody did anything wrong, that any voters did anything wrong. That's not something that they're alleging. That's not something that they've been proving. And um, I don't think ultimately it's going to be a winning strategy because I think hearing uh, campaigns say, we do not believe these votes should be counted because somebody else maybe made a mistake, is something that I think voters are going to be really, really frustrated about. Is there a Nevada lawsuit? I haven't seen it, personally, if there yeah, is. Yeah, there, there, were, there, were, there were two lawsuits. Um, and again, they, uh, they uh, reached a particular point uh, either right before the day before the election or the day of the election. But as you know, that there's multiple steps in lawsuit processes. So it, it remains to be seen if somebody tries to move it to later stages and whether or not those later stages could move up. But um, it, 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 there, both of the cases were not uh, well received by the courts at the last filing that I 
saw, um, and I will just be watching to see if there's later movement on those cases. So Susan Page, both campaigns are still fundraising, even though Election Day has passed, and they're fundraising for the legal bills that are now <laughs> starting to be incurred. What do you see, and I realize Myrna is really our legal person here and you're a politics person, but what do you see as the legal landscape to come based on the politics? Are the ones announced today only the beginning? You know, it could, could be. I mean, the Trump campaign would love to get a Bush v. Gore kind of lawsuit going, uh, but they'll need to find the justification for them. But let me just say one thing about what you know, she was making the point legally that these lawsuits are a distraction, a delaying tactic. I think there's some, they are also something else. They are an excuse for losing. Uh, they are give President Trump uh, the uh, some some uh, ability to argue that he didn't get be beaten fair and square. There was fraud. There were these mail-in ballots. He was ahead, and then suddenly all these ballots showed up mysteriously in the states of the blue wall. So I think that is part of what we're seeing. We're seeing an effort to lay the predicate for why he's not really to blame. He's not really a loser if, in fact, he does lose his bid for a second term. Bob in Arlington, Massachusetts. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Bob. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I have no, I've had no anxiety at all about the voting process. We had plenty of time to mail in, and I trust that it, every vote's being vetted so closely. But I, I haven't heard anyone mention, where, what about the military vote? How does that get, how does that get delivered? Um, is that individuals mailing themselves or is there bulk mailings? And when are they counted? It's a great question. And Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today, <laughs> it certainly risks putting Trump in a rhetorically contradictory position. It wouldn't be the first time that a, uh, a politician um, was contradicting himself, but he, you know, says votes that come in after Election Day should be seen as invalid, but he also holds himself up as a great patriot with respect to supporting the military. And yeah, the laws are... I, as I've heard it, from two days after Election Day in South Carolina up to 20 days after Election Day in Washington state for members of the military serving overseas as long as their ballots are postmarked by Election Day. Right. And so it varies state to state. It's also an argument that you hear Democrats making this time around, uh, that the actions and the complaints that uh, President Trump and his campaign have made would affect not just Democrats who mailed in ballots. It would affect people who are serving some of them overseas on dangerous duty and mailing in their ballots. So it's definitely been kind of part of this debate. It is not something that the Trump campaign has talked about. They haven't talked about uh, wanting to stop military ballots. Their focus is entirely on Democratic ballots uh, from uh, that are likely to be de more likely to be Democratic votes that have come in, some of them late. You saw that a bit, that was a big point of contention, of course, in the Pennsylvania case. Right. So count the late arriving ballots we want to be counted and don't <laughs> count the ones we don't want to be. So Myrna Perez, director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program, on that point, the Trump campaign is trying specifically to get the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, to exclude absentee ballots in Pennsylvania that arrive today, tomorrow, or Friday. The Pennsylvania election rules currently allow that three-day window, as long as they're postmarked, 
by Election Day. So what would the legal argument be there to have the Supreme Court cancel a state's election policy that's equally available to all its voters? Well, and it's even more than that, because the Supreme Court already had the opportunity to uh, review this uh, argument and declined to make any changes. So the voters in Pennsylvania heard not only from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, but also from the U.S. Supreme Court that Pennsylvania's policy would stand. And that was what we saw um, the president file papers to intervene in today. We don't know if the court is going to allow him to intervene at this late stage. But I think there's something really problematic about uh, voters being told by two independent courts um, that something was okay, and then to go uh, a few days later and decide that those those ballots should not be counted. Voters um, should be able to rely on the word of the Supreme Court of this country. They should be able to rely on an interpretation of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is multiple bites at the apple where there's one lawsuit is not doing very well, so they're coming up with another legal theory, and then they're trying another legal theory, and then they're trying another legal theory, um, and not getting a bunch of traction from any of those. And again, I think most of these lawsuits are going to be found to be uh, frivolous and not particularly relevant to the outcome, but I do think that they do a damage to our judiciary and the way people think about our judiciary. Folks imagine our judiciary to be protecting the right to vote, and when it is seen as being a tool used by partisan operatives to try and stop people from voting, that's, I, that, I worry, is going to uh, create a question of legitimacy. Brandon in Perry County, Kentucky, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Brandon. Hello, and thank you for taking my call. Certainly. Sure, what would you like to say or ask? Well, it's a little off topic, so I'm going to change my original question. I just want to uh, ask, you know, with all that has went on during Trump's term, them trying to get him impeached and, and all this and that, that, Everybody has been against him since day one, and him not doing anything but his job and everything he said he was going to do down to a T. I mean, if he promised it, he did it. Even the wall, all that, people think that wall is a racist move. That wall protects you from all the killers, the rapists, the murderers that are trying to get into this country illegally. If they want to come in, they're welcome. But there's a process for that. That is the purpose of the wall. And people are holding that against Trump. I don't understand that. But anyway, to get to the point. And other people will disagree with that interpretation, but but that's fine. Go ahead. I want to know how that they think that these votes that are coming in and, and... I don't know how to put that on the radio. I want to know how they think these votes are coming in are not, you know, fraudulent votes when all they've tried to do since day one is get Trump out of office. I see this as another move with the COVID-19 to cover up a perfect way to get him elected out of office. 
when when you say another way in addition to COVID-19, are you saying you don't believe COVID-19 is real? Brandon? Brandon, did you hear my, did you hear the follow-up question? Yeah. No, I did not. Oh, I asked, did you mean to say that you don't believe COVID-19 is real, but just deploy to get Trump out of office? No, no, no. I know the virus is real, but I think it's the perfect cover-up because of how everything is being done to help whoever yeah, the Democratic agenda to get Trump out of office. And let me ask you one more follow-up. Um, you probably heard Mirna Perez say earlier that there's no allegation of any particular vote having been cast fraudulently. Uh, and certainly one party wants oh, to no. get the other party out of office. But if there's no allegation of a voter, why are you pretty sure that there's fraud going on? Well, okay, so with Trump, I mean, he, he's got his flaws. But people cannot honestly think that Biden is the better candidate. I mean, well, it, it people seems have, to me... People Biden have their opinions, but go ahead. Know. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Brandon, thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. And, uh, well, Susan Page, let me throw that to you for a little bit of political analysis. Yes, How many I'm people, so and, and obviously he can, you know believe that nobody could believe that Biden is a better candidate. Biden's got three million more popular votes at this time. But what were you thinking during that whole call? And how representative of that uh, is that of how many people? I think Brandon represents a lot of people. I think one of the surprises that we saw last night was how durable and how strong the Trump coalition continues to be, even after all the questions about the president's handling of the coronavirus. Um, his support is still is still pretty solid. He is there did Democrats had thought there was a chance that this this election would um, end up being kind of a, na a national consensus that Trump was an aberration that he got elected four years ago because of some weird combination of the Democratic candidate and and the the miscalculations and grievances and Clinton fatigue and all that. But what we learned yesterday was that that's not the case. That there is a there is a so solid group of supporters who very much believe what President Trump says, um, as as Brandon does. Believe he has been ill treated by the media, by Democrats, by everybody, by the elites uh, for the past four years, and are, who are still with him. Uh, so even though it looks as though President Trump is unlikely to win a second term, he did. He, this is uh, the, the the returns that we saw show his strength. Uh, as well as some of his weaknesses. And you saw that, just just one other point, you saw that in the way he has remade the Republican Party for the long term. Uh, the Republicans held the Senate, or it looks like they are very likely to hold the Senate. We didn't expect that. They are gaining seats in the House. We didn't expect that either. And it is a Republican Party that very much reflects President Trump, and I think will continue to reflect him for some considerable time going forward. And listeners, Susan has um, a new piece for USA Today where she's the Washington bureau chief, Susan Page. And on this point, it starts, no blue wave, no rebuke of President Trump as a four-year aberration. And even if a new Democratic president is sworn in, 
no new Washington. So we will follow up on that thought with more of your calls and more of the legal challenges to the vote with Myrna Perez from the, uh, the Brennan Center. When America, are we ready? Continues. From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? This hour, are we ready to finish counting the votes? As we ask that question with Myrna Perez, director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program, and Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. As we sit here, according at least to the Associated Press and Fox News Channel, Joe Biden is just six electoral votes away from winning the presidency, and he's leading in Nevada, which would put him over the top. But the lawsuits, oh, the lawsuits. The Trump administration is starting to file lawsuits. So the future is uncertain, at least the near future. And I think we have a call about exactly that from Carlos in Bedford, New York. Carlos, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so I just I wanted to ask your guest, you know, uh, obviously, most of these lawsuits, uh, you know, at least from what I'm getting from them, you know, are being received or have been received so far, you know, as frivolous. But obviously, they're uh, stalling tactics. What's the longest, you know, rough in their rough estimate, you know, that these lawsuits could stall, um, you know, I guess, you know, the inevitable, hopefully what is the inevitable, uh, which is, uh, you know, Biden being declared president. I mean, I guess he could be declared prior to, prior to that, but you know, when will what's what's the timeline, longest possible timeline for Donald Trump running out of lawsuits he can file? You know, before he really mm -hmm. has no, you know, hopefully nothing else to say. Good question. I'll bet a lot of people are curious about that, especially after what you said before, Mirna. Part of which was right. that this is a delaying tactic. So, is it possible to answer Carlos's question tonight? Yeah. Yes, largely, in that um, the courts do want to move these as quickly as possible. Um, we are seeing courts make really quick decisions um, because nobody wants to miss state certification deadlines. Everyone wants to be able to swear somebody in at the same time. So while um, there, it's just it's really hard to imagine a situation in which all the courts aren't going to be doing everything they can to be moving their cases as quickly as possible. I mean, we are hearing of cases getting filed on one day, the next day they're in court on hearings, the next day they're requiring papers, and on that day later in the evening you're going to get your results. Um, you know, one of the big cases that we filed in, in a two-week period went from trial court to the state Supreme Court, um, which meant it went through three different judicial processes. Um, so I think the courts are going to be moving as quickly as they can to be disposing of these cases. You're saying same day in some cases. Well, not same same day in that you'll get a rule, you'll get a particular ruling in one day, and then after you file the your response papers, you might get a ruling that night. So um, we're, we're we're seeing some pretty pretty quick actions. Can't get an Amazon delivery that quick. Tyler in Grand Forks, North Dakota. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Tyler. Hi. How are you? Good. 
You have a question or a comment? Yeah, I'm uh, a little bit of both. I'm wondering how bad is uh, social media polarizing everyone? And if Russia, China, and Iran are interfering with it? Well, how bad they're polarizing everyone is such a huge question. But Susan, you kind of go there in your new piece for USA Today about how riven this country is in a way that maybe we thought wouldn't look so much this way after these election returns, right? Yeah. Well, we thought, you know, we, we this is a, yet another election in which the polling turns out to look pretty sorry uh, once we actually have people voting. And there were some really signs off. in the polling that we were going to have um, more of a national consensus, right? And that there's some places that it usually been red would look pretty purple and that Texas was in play and uh, which turned out not to be the case. So there, I think there had been some hopes that, that maybe we would be moving on a little bit from the polarization we've seen, but we did not in fact see that last night. And what we, what we continue to see in some of the um, surveys of voters after they had voted is, you know, a big divide between, between men and women, between whites and blacks, between, young people and middle-aged people, uh, between people who live in the suburbs and people who live in rural areas. Uh, and we just, I think we just continue to be, to be two Americas. And how about foreign interference? Can I jump in there, Brian? Yeah, sure. I mean, Can I jump ahead. in? I mean, wh- one of the things that I also um, think is very interesting, and I was thinking it as you were having the initial conversation um, with Susan, was the media has been a big driver behind the expectation that we will find out on election night who won. And um, that, I think, assumes um, processes that don't um, include as many people as possible. I mean, if we want to give voters till the last possible minute to make a decision, then that means letting ballots be mailed on election day. If we want to give voters the opportunity to fix technical defects, that means being able to let them know that there's something wrong with their ballot. If we want to make sure that um, foreign cyber criminals didn't hack our election results, we need to be conducting audits. Um, And I think when posed directly, most Americans would say that the priority is to have an accurate count that includes all the votes of the eligible people that cast it over speed. But we've gotten into this habit of expecting immediate answers. And I think it would be better for all of us if we focused on something that I do believe is true, which is we want an accurate count. We want an inclusive count. And just kind of getting people used to the idea of being patient and letting the process um, work itself through. As they do in many other countries, more routinely, by the way. Lisa in Grafton, Vermont. You're on WN. You're on uh, America. Are we ready? Hi, Lisa. Hi. Um, I'm curious about the Federal Election Commission, which, as far as I understand, has no oversight um, over the counting of the votes that everything is run correctly. Uh, it's only concerned with the campaign finances. Um, it's not responsible for calling the winners per state. Uh, it's just tying into the previous uh, uh, comment. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, we are dependent on the various media networks to announce, to call the winners. They use various criteria and do it at different times. 
So the Federal Election Commission has no role in any of that? Mirna, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me, there's actually two important election commissions. One is the Federal Election Commission, which deals with largely whether or not folks are adhering to campaign finance laws. The other is the Election Assistance Commission, which deals with things like um, how safe are the voting machines and the technology we use, what are best practices for poll workers. But I want to remind folks that we have a system whereby states run elections. So it's not the the media can make calls, but it's the states that have to certify their election results. It's state electors that that end up voting on this. And so, you know, the media making an incorrect call causes a great deal of confusion and sets expectation and the likes, but the media doesn't get to decide who won or who doesn't and we're even seeing variety in terms of like which media are calling which races and under what basis. So, I mean, we we do have a decentralized system where states run elections. You mentioned a lawsuit that the Trump campaign filed in Georgia just this evening. A lot of our listeners mm-hmm. haven't heard about that one yet. What is that lawsuit? Well, it just it just happened a little bit ago. Uh, again, it's a, it's uh it's one of these observing uh, one of these observing uh, lawsuits, uh, it has to do with Chatham County um, and uh, uh, trying to, uh, to calling into question whether or not uh, the ballots in Chatham County had been improperly mingled with uh, ballots that uh, supposedly arrived late. So um, we'll, we'll see what that ends up being. Dina in Manhattan. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Dina. Do we have Dina in Manhattan, New York City? Hello, Dina. I guess Dina is somewhere in her room, but not really on her phone. I'm going to ask Dina's question, Susan, as it was summarized by my screen. Which this doesn't sound is, like you're following proper processes as established by uh, yes, the radio yes. commission. I, yeah. I, I'm, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not going to take my license away for trying to characterize a caller in good faith. But I'm told now that Dina is there. So after all, I'm going to let her ask her question herself. Hi, Dina, you're on America. Are we ready? Hey there. I'm so sorry about that. Actually, I didn't have a question. I think you asked um, where were we going to be after all of this. Sure. And so this is something that has always frustrated me. But we are going to be a continually thwarted democracy until we prioritize abolishing the Electoral College. It would put out all of these fires, wouldn't it? I don't know if it would put out all of these fires, but is it something that you, Mirna Perez, as director of a voting rights project, advocate? Um, so the Brennan Center uh, certainly uh, believes that the Electoral College is uh, problematic from a democracy standpoint, but I do think you're right that there are a number of lessons to be learned from this election process and, uh, and uh, whether or not presidents should be decided by the popular vote is only one of them. I mean, I think it's real important that your listeners know that 
under the best of circumstances, we underfund our elections, that our election administrators do not have the resources that they need, and that they specifically requested an additional uh, $4 billion uh, from Congress to try and be able to account for all of the changes that needed to be dealt with um, that were brought on by COVID, and those, that didn't come. So I, I'm hoping that people look around and they remember, you know, what were the long lines like? Did your polling place have an, uh, poll workers with enough PPE? Did you have enough poll workers? Did your machines break down? Did you get uh, enough information about where you were supposed to vote? There are a lot of ways in which we can improve our electoral process, and I think it's really important that we do that. We want to be the best democracy in the world. We have to be willing to invest in it. And this year, um, we had a lot of challenges because of a once-in-a-century pandemic, but we do need a system that is able to withstand whatever challenge the moment throws at us, because in another year, it could be foreign cyber criminals crippling our infrastructure or really bad weather. Like, we want a process of being able to select our leaders that can withstand um, the modern challenges that may be coming up in, in today's world. Susan, we did have record turnout for a presidential election, and Joe Biden got more votes than any presidential candidate ever, about 70 million votes. Donald Trump is about 3 million votes behind him, uh, which makes him one of the biggest vote-getters in American presidential election history. Do you find something redeeming about the large turnout? I find two things redeeming about this election. And one is that we did not have incidents of violence yesterday, and there'd been a lot of concern about that, but the voting was pretty smooth. And that was a huge relief. The other are these levels of turnout, which were just phenomenal. And I do think that, uh, that they're fueled by the fact that both sides see the other side as totally unacceptable, right? People think the stakes are really high to have their side win in this election, which is something that got people out to vote. But also, it, it's it's a little paradoxical because the coronavirus made it so hard to vote and states responded by really expanding early voting and mail-in voting and absentee voting that people found it easier to vote. Uh, one of the things we saw in the exit polls was people said, actually, it was uh, either no harder than usual or easier than usual to cast their ballot. And that encouraged them to vote. So I think we are likely to see states adopt some of these measures, even when the coronavirus is gone, to extend the election season, not just an election day, and to give people a variety of different ways to cast their ballots. And that, I think, is one of the good things that we see from this election this year. Do you agree with that, Myrna? I mean, absolutely. I, I think... It will be a real shame if we don't learn from this experience. We need to have a system that is better prepared. We need to have a system that uh, accounts for the fact that Americans are very diverse and we have different needs. Um, and we need a system that uh, takes all of our diversity and gives people options because our democracy works best when it includes all of us. Um, and we, are, we have gotten too complacent in the fact that there have been some people shut out of the system. Um, one of the things that I think I've told you before, Brian, is that like I have gotten more phone calls in the last three weeks compared to the last 15 years I've been doing this work about voters who are ho housing insecure. We didn't all of a sudden develop a terrible process for voters that are housing insecure. Um, we've always been bad at it. 
And now, because it looks like it's impacting more people, and because people can look and think, oh, uh, you know, that might be me one day, people are starting to worry about it, but it shouldn't be the case that we're not reforming, that we're allowing um, gaps in our electoral system to persist until they start impacting, um, you know, the white white voters, right? Like, we need to be thinking about what are the ways in which we have systematically failed to include all of our communities, mm-hmm. and what can we proactively do to bring all of us in? And to that point, Susan Page, in our last minute or so, you note some of the demographics in the election returns in your new USA Today piece. Uh, white voters supported Trump by 11 points. Voters of color backed Biden by more than three to one. Rural residents supported Trump by two to one. City dwellers backed Biden by three to one. Voters in midlife, age 45 to 59, supported Trump by 11 points. Those under 30 backed Biden by nearly three to one. White women with a college degree supported Biden by 27 points. White men without a college degree backed Trump by a stunning 40 points. Almost no one crossed party lines. Is that different than 2016? It, it is. Uh, it is some of those are similar to the profile we saw in uh, in in 2016. It's very it's reminiscent of 2016, but you got to go back. You don't have to go back that. We, and, and this 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 polarization is something that's been happening over a long period of time. But you go back to when I started covering campaigns, and those numbers would have been unthinkable. That kind of divide along all those demographic lines. Uh, the the parties have become so incredibly different from one another uh, that uh, it feeds the idea that the other side is not an adversary but an enemy. Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Mirna Perez, Director of the Voting Rights Project at the Brennan Center. Thank you so much for being our guest this hour. Thank you. And great to be with you, Brian. And thanks to all of you who called in. That is America Are We Ready for this hour, produced by Megan Ryan, Lisa Allison, and Zach Goddard-Cohen, with Jason Isaac at the Audio Controls. I'm Brian Lehrer, and you can also find me on my daily call-in show, The Brian Lehrer Show, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time at WNYC.org, or sign up for my free podcast called Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening this hour. From WNYC in New York, it's America, Are We Ready? Tonight, America, Are We Ready to Finish Counting the Votes? Hi everyone, I'm Brian Lehrer. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, won by Trump in 2016, have now been called for Biden by multiple news organization election desks, including Fox News. If Nevada goes his way as it's leaning, Biden will win, but he still might not. And the Trump campaign is filing multiple lawsuits seeking to have some crucial votes thrown out or never counted at all. This hour, we'll get the latest numbers, hear the legal and political arguments, and try to be clear about where things stand. And we'll take your calls. America, are we ready to finish counting the votes? First, the latest news.
from WNYC in New York. This is America. Are we ready? Tonight, America, are we ready to finish counting the votes? Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. And here we are in the next phase of the presidential election, right? According to several top news organization election desks, including Fox News, Joe Biden has 264 of the 270 electoral votes needed to win the White House. The AP and Fox have declared Biden the winner in three states that Trump won in 2016, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. If he also wins Nevada, where he's leading, or one of several other states where he's trailing but that have still not been called, Biden will win. But part of the new phase that began this afternoon is the legal phase. The Trump campaign is going to court to challenge the counting process in one of those Biden states, Michigan, as well as Pennsylvania and Georgia, which have not yet been called. And they're asking for a recount in Wisconsin and supporting a lawsuit in Nevada. There is also surprising news on the Senate and the House. So let's see where things stand and where they could go with our guests this hour and with your calls. We'll give you the phone number in a minute. Joining me now, Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst for Real Clear Politics, Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute Think Tank, and author of The Lost Majority, Why the Future of Government is Up for Grabs, and Who Will Take It. Also, Dale Ho, Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Also, Maria Hinojosa, anchor and executive producer of Latino USA, and author of the new book, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate in a Torn America. Sean and Dale and Marina, Maria, thanks for being ready for America. Are we ready? Hi. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Sean, lawsuits aside for the moment, we'll get to the lawsuits. Where does the presidential race stand as of right now? So as of right now, I, I, you would definitely rather be Joe Biden uh, than Donald Trump. Uh, he, he has a lead in, in uh, Arizona, uh, has a lead in Nevada. Georgia looks to be closing. Um, and Pennsylvania looks to be closing. So right now it looks as though he's on track for about 290 to 306 electoral votes. Obviously, you don't want to make these calls until all the votes are counted, but um, things do not look uh, particularly promising for the Trump campaign. Sean, I'll note that CNN and MSNBC are not ca- calling Arizona, while Fox and the AP are. What do you make of what's happening in Arizona and why they disagree? I think it's very close. You know, there are still a lot of uh, a lot of votes to be counted. And one of the problems that we have with Arizona is that Maricopa is a giant county where almost all the vote is cast, and so it can be a little bit more difficult to know exactly where the outstanding votes and ballots are coming from. I think there's probably a disagreement over um, you know how these votes are likely to break and and where the voters that cast them are located. Um, I think this all points to Donald Trump may have a path to victory in that state, but it's probably a narrow one. Maria, anything on Arizona in particular and where it stands or could go and why? Well, let me just be very honest with you because I am always honest with you and with the listeners. Um, I find it very interesting that this has come down to Maricopa County. Um that, that's the one place where um, I've actually been bullied in the middle of an interview. And you probably know who I'm talking about. It would be Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So the, the fact that the uh, Arizona race is kind of focusing on Maricopa County and that potentially it could be Maricopa County that ends up turning the state definitively blue 
is quite fascinating. I mean, I was in Arizona 10 years ago when the law SB 1070 was signed into law. It was uh, later challenged. But this was the most restrictive anti-immigrant law um, since uh, Pete Wilson in, in California and Proposition 187. And, and to think that 10 years later, this state that was so solidly red, that was so solidly anti-immigrant, in, in fact, many on the, on the ground told me they perceived it as anti-Latino, that would end up being Latino and Latina votes that uh, provide that margin uh, to Biden is really just quite fascinating in terms of how a state can change in a matter of a decade. And we'll come back for more detail on the presidential race and some interesting trends in House and Senate races. But Dale Ho, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project, I'll bring you in on the lawsuit phase of the race. Trump lawsuits in Michigan and Pennsylvania say they should stop counting votes because the Trump campaign has been denied meaningful access to the opening and counting of mail-in ballots, meaningful access to observe them closely. From an ACLU perspective, do they have a point? Um, well, I can speak to Michigan where I'm um, familiar with the facts from our team that's been looking at it. And in Michigan, they don't have a point. There were some assertions that um, some members of the Trump uh, campaign uh, or volunteers with the campaign couldn't get into the vote counting center in Detroit. Um, that's because it was already full with observers from both the Democratic and Republican side, and there was simply no more room left inside of the building where the vote counting was taking place. So neither campaign was denied meaningful access there. Um, to the extent there was any illegality going on, there appeared to be some harassment by the people who claimed that they were being unlawfully excluded, banging on the windows and the like, threatening to kind of storm the building um, in a way that did not, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 seem appropriate at all. Um, you know, I think fortunately that died down without um, further incident and, and the crowd appears to have dispersed. But I, I don't think there's any, as far as I can tell right now anyway, um, any truth, any kinds of allegations of improper exclusion from the vote counting process. Let me play a soundbite from, I think, exactly that incident you were talking about. This is Stephen Bland, a chaplain for Detroit Democratic poll watchers standing outside a poll counting site that was having drama today about the limited number of ballot challengers allowed inside due to COVID. We are in the process of wanting to get all the votes counted. The road to victory of any side is going to come through Michigan and through Detroit. And that's a Democrat. Uh, and I read, and I guess this reflects what you were just saying, police had to be called to that site. They locked the door after, quote, a group of unidentified people started chanting, stop the votes, after which one of the challengers was escorted from the room. So it's not going to stop the vote, but is this going to stop things for an extended period of time? You know, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, for me to get in the mind of folks who would engage in this kind of behavior, but, you know, it seems like there might be a concerted strategy here to kind of, you know, throw some things up into the air to try to create some confusion and some doubt about the process. You know, we've seen this from the beginning with, you know, efforts by the president himself to sort of undermine the integrity of the count. So chaos, so confusion about whether or not 
it's appropriate to be counting ballots after election day. Um, spoiler alert, yes, it is. <laughs> that happens in every election. It's not abnormal. It's not unusual. What is unusual this year is the high volume of ballots that have been cast by mail, thanks to some changes in laws that permit all eligible voters to vote by mail in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and also um, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has really turbocharged you know, the desire for people to um, vote early and vote remotely if they can. Um, but you know, election experts have been predicting this situation for, um, if not weeks, um, 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 actually, I think months, that it's this year, election night, is just a little different than years past. It's going to take a little bit longer because of the volume of absentee votes and because of the kind of partisan split in vote choice this year with more Democrats choosing to vote by mail or early in person, more Republicans choosing to vote on Election Day, and the difference in when those ballots ordered in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. It, it just means a different... Um, 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 you know, election night count than and and voting process in the days afterwards than uh, we've had in years past. But that's not um, unusual. That's actually how we predicted things were going to break out. Now, listeners, we can take your vote counting and legal challenge questions at eight four four seven four five talk. That's eight four four seven four five eight two five five. There are many moving parts right now in a handful of states. What can our guests clarify for you? 844-745-TALK. You can also make a comment. Who are we as a nation after this mixed result? And it's a mixed result, however it turns out, and we will talk about that too. 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. And let's take a phone call right now. Here's Justin, who says he's a trucker in Rhode Island at the moment. Justin, you're on America. Are we ready? Thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for taking me. I appreciate it. What are you, you seeing from okay? the road? I can hear just fine, yeah. Perfect. Uh, roads are actually kind of clear right now, thank God. But uh, my, my question is, I am neither Democrat or Republican, and unfortunately I wasn't able to vote this year due to complications because I moved. But I want to know what you guys think is going to be the outcome of whoever wins, whether it be Trump or Biden. I personally am getting nervous because I'm a truck driver. I'm on these roads, and I see on the news Boston and New York are boarding up all these places, getting ready for, like, a war, riots. And it's, it's honestly scary. Justin, thank you. And so far, Maria, it's been pretty chill in that respect. But how would you answer Justin's question? Look, I, I understand um, his concern. And thank you, Justin, for doing your work um, every day on those roads. I, I think we do need I think we actually do need to chill. Uh, I think we have to take it as it as it were one day at a time. Um, you know, we have been here before. I want to remind people, uh, Brian, it was the year 2000, as a matter of fact. Uh, and we didn't know who was president. And the country kept on functioning, you know, day in, day out, uh, because we knew that it was a challenging time and there was a lot of confusion. But I, I, I don't, I, I think that um, there will be an attempt to instigate that kind of violence and fear. This is an administration and a campaign that has made inroads um, and that won many votes on the basis of fear. Case in point, Florida. Um, 
and, and, and Latinos and Latinas from places like Cuba or Venezuela or Bolivia. Um, so I don't want to gaslight you and well, say, well, you shouldn't rhetorical, be afraid. Rhetorical mm-hmm. fear is one thing. Physical intimidation is something else, right? Correct. Right. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think we need to be, you know, checking this out. And if you, here's a case where if you see something, say something, absolutely. Like we should, we should be feeling safe. And that's the vibe that we should be giving to each other. But I am concerned that there are elements in our country that have always existed and have always been around that want to instigate division wherever possible. And those are the those are the people and organizations that we need to be calling out, that, that kind of needless instigation of division in our country that already exists. We don't need more of it. Justin, thanks for being citizen eyes and ears out there. From your truck, this is America. Are we ready? We continue in a minute. From WNYC in New York, this is America. Are we ready? Tonight, America, are we ready to finish counting the votes? With Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst for Real Clear Politics, Dale Ho, Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and Maria Hinojosa, anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and author of her new memoir, Once I Was You. I want to take a step back and look at who we are as a country after this election and as reflected by these election results, really no matter who winds up winning the White House between Trump and Biden. And one way in is, Sean, you retweeted someone who posted this. Tell me if you can verify it. It says, results from Star County, Texas, the most Latino county in the United States, 96% Latino. In 2016, Clinton won that county by 60 points. 2020, Biden only plus five, with 98% reporting. So we are witnessing a dramatic and historic realignment, says the original post. Sean, let me get you on that, and then Maria. I think calling it a dramatic and historic realignment uh, is a little bit uh, of, of irrational exuberance, uh, as they might say. And as, as a matter of fact, since then, I should update that Joe Biden did end up winning the, the county uh, by five points. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I think it's interesting, especially after the type of presidency he's had, uh, to see Donald Trump performing well uh, in some of these uh, border counties. I, you know, I think when we talk about uh, the Hispanic or Latino vote, we need to remember that it's, uh, and I'm sure Maria can speak more competently to this than I can, um, but, you know, it's, it's a very diverse um, community, very diverse group with, with differing interests that don't necessarily play the way uh, that I think journalists uh, sometimes see from their homes in the suburbs. Maria? Yeah, look, <clears throat> You Trump know, got a I, lot I, of Latino votes. I know it's an extremely yeah. diverse set of communities around the country, but I think the early indications are a larger percentage than 2016. Correct me if I'm wrong. And the thing is, Brian, we could do a whole hour just on that. So let me try and go quickly. But, you know, let's just take like the, the southern border, the Rio Grande Valley of, of Texas, where somebody who I know, who I call like my my father, grandfather, who was a, is a civil rights activist, Mexican-American banker, who ends up voting, voting for Donald Trump. And it's kind of his area that ends up going, um, ends up losing numbers for, for Biden and going more for Trump. Why? 
I mean, he said that this was because uh, Donald Trump was good for his uh, 401k, for his retirement package. You know, you have to understand that um, you have in that part of the country um, one, uh, sadly, highly militarized border, a border that I've been crossing for the entirety of my life. It looks like now the height of the Berlin Wall with razor wire everywhere. So, you know, there are people who are going to be part of that, who are working for the Border Patrol, working for ICE, who live on that border, who are Latinos and Latinas, who the only jobs that they can get are for working for those institutions that our tax dollars are paying for to detain people who are really not a threat to us. So there's that going on when you think about the very targeted effort that the Trump campaign, previously the Trump, Trump administration made, in going after Latinos in South Florida, Latino evangelicals in Central Florida. It did not happen like a year ago, Brian. It happened two years ago, two and a half, three years ago. The same thing on the border. The Trump administration was meeting with folks. They were having White House meetings. And, you know, when you're of a community, a Latino community, and you're getting, you know, invited to be on a White House call or the White House office on this and that wants to have a, a conference call with you or the White House banking, whatever, wants you know, have a call. You know, Latinos respond to this. It's the same way in which when Bernie Sanders was out there, you know, getting those votes, they responded and they they voted for him. So. Donald Trump was and his people were doing that work. It should not be such a surprise. And also mm. about 30 percent of Latinos have been Republicans, not just for a few years, but for decades. Ron in Manchester, New Hampshire. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Ron. Yeah, good evening. It's uh, nice to be on with you and especially a privilege to share time with Maria, longtime fan and admirer. Um, Thank you. I just want to know if the panel thinks, if the panel believes that the fact that the Trump administration's going to back itself into a corner by taking potentially inconsistent positions on where they want the counts to continue and where they want the counts to stop, uh, their case on appeal, whether it's uh, through a circuit court or directly to... Right, and your line is breaking up, but... I think your question is clear. So Dale Ho from the ACLU Voting Rights Project, let me throw it to you and let me try to clarify it for our listeners if it didn't come through that well on Ron's line. Uh, it looks like Trump is saying stop counting the votes in Pennsylvania and Michigan, but saying keep going, count those votes in Arizona where he needs to catch up. And in Nevada too as well, I think. So there does seem to be a little bit of an inconsistency there. I think you know, everyone, I think, listening probably understands that elections are decided by voters. Uh, an election's not officially um, over until the votes are counted and that every vote is counted because every voter's ballot counts. Um, now, we're used to getting forecasts and projections on election night. Um, and then we talked about why that this election is a little bit different. But it's important to recognize that those those forecasts are not official elections results, that when one candidate, quote unquote, pulls ahead of another candidate as the votes are counted, you know, this isn't like a baseball game where, you know, some votes were cast first and then the candidate rustled another votes. It's just all the votes were cast before the deadline and some of them are counted earlier than others. 
Um, but it's not actually like a horse race that's happening right now. Um, it's important to get to the you know, final result. Let's get an initial count of um, all of the ballots in all of these states, and then we'll see where we right. are. If but as a matter close, of law, I mean, certainly yeah. as a matter of politics, the parties, the, the individuals are going to be inconsistent when it's in their interest. There's nothing new about that. But as a matter of law, does it hurt Trump's case in court if he's arguing to stop the counting in Pennsylvania while he's arguing politically to keep the counting going in Arizona, Nevada? I, I mean, I, I don't think he has much of an argument for stopping the count in Pennsylvania. I mean, the way an election is run is you count all of the votes and there isn't I haven't seen a plausible argument for why that needs to suddenly you know stop. So I, I, I just I just don't think that, you know, the counting is going to continue until probably Friday in Pennsylvania. And, you know, right now, I think the Trump campaign has thrown a lot of, you know, things at the wall to see if something sticks in terms of the litigation. And I haven't seen anything in Arizona or in Michigan or in Georgia or even in Pennsylvania that I think is something that as of now we should be thinking could, you know, potentially determine the outcome of any one of those states individually, let alone the presidential election. Let's get the vote count relatively close to final in those states. We'll see how close we are. Then we can start talking about whether or not litigation might plausibly, you know, change um, um, who's uh, ahead. Let's take a Pennsylvania caller next then. Anne, in northeast Pennsylvania, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Anne. Thanks for calling in. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I think this is a very interesting program. And first, I would like to make a couple comments, and then I have a question to follow up with, which is a very short one, and I'll take that answer off the air. But my comments are, um, because of what Maria said, I guess it was that you, Maria, that was talking about California and how they have a totally, how their attitude toward immigrants and immigration has made a total 180 degree turn since a decade ago and you couldn't understand arizona. why that is it's okay. actually arizona so oh, go ahead, Ann, but go ahead. you can come california you can complete your thought though what, Ann. go ahead whatever it was here's a suggestion um maybe why the state did turn make a total 180-degree turn on their attitude toward immigrants is after seeing this year what our president has done to those immigrants and separating children from the families and putting children in really rough places before they were even placed in foster care and everything else, maybe that made them feel a little more compassionate toward immigrants. And the other thing I want to say about immigrants is people need to remember this this country, this nation, for the past, ever since its beginning, over 200 years ago, was built by immigrants. And also, my three children were raised to be open to all peoples of all nations, all colors, because other cultures have so much to teach us. There's good in every culture, whether it's food or different things in your lifestyle that make things easier. There's so much we need to learn from all different cultures. And, that, and the more we learn and understand 
the less violence there will be because we're more accepting, and, and that's what we need to be. And, and the only time I remember in history that bringing in a specific group of people was a bad thing in America was, was this 20 or 25 years ago when we took, when Miami took in Cuba's... Oh, gosh. Uh, you don't... You you were you were loving everybody, and now you're going to dump on the the Cuban refugees. No, not not in general. Only when when they took their inmates in Miami. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, Go ahead, Maria. Well, that that the whole dynamic with Cuba is very very complicated. I would encourage you to, because um, you were very thoughtful, to um, think about um, the misinformation or other stories that were being pushed in terms of who was coming it during that time. And, and I'm trying to think if you were talking about the 1993 exodus, because I covered all of them. Um, you know, I, I think what we want to take from the caller is this notion of you know, uh, le yeah, let's learn compassion. I I'm not, I'm not sure if we can say that about the voters right now in Arizona. I think what I'm looking at in, in the voters of Arizona is the demographic change, Latinos that came of age over the last 10 years, those who were active in the anti-SB 1070 um, movement that then, you know, just became completely committed to electoral politics. I, I remember saying exactly 10 years ago in Arizona, like, I think this is going to backfire in, 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 in a decade. This is going to change. Mm. And that's what we're witnessing. And, and sure. it's going to happen across the country, but it's going to come painfully and slowly. Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics. There are several shifts that seem to have taken place in the electorate. Biden seems to have won probably three states, at least, that Trump won in 2016. We should acknowledge that that's different. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, probably. And we keep the door open to uncertainty these days. But Republicans seem to have held on to the Senate and picked up a few seats in the Democratic House. All these things are surprising, and they're a mishmash. Are there patterns? Can these seemingly contradictory outcomes be integrated into some meaningful patterns here? I think we might be getting ahead of ourselves on the Senate because I, I think there's a good chance uh, that, that Republicans will be at 50, but that the two Georgia Senate races, that they're both going to end up going to runoffs. And, and we'll see. Those have mm -hmm. unique dynamics. But, you know, there there are some pretty seismic shifts that have occurred in the age of Trump. Uh, and you can see it in my, I think, uh, and this actually explains, I think, a lot of what's going on in Arizona. But if you look at the state I'm, I'm in, uh, Ohio, Delaware County, where I live, is kind of an upper-middle-class suburb of Columbus. It hasn't voted for a Democrat uh, since 1916. I'm not sure what they had against Charles Evans Hughes, but they apparently didn't like that Republican. Um, Donald Trump won it by six points. He won it by 16 um, four years ago. So there's been a generalized shift against Republicans in the suburbs. And so in a state like Arizona, when people think – and Texas – when people think of Arizona and Texas – they think of cowboys and tumbleweeds, and there's a lot of that, but no one lives there. Almost all the vote in those western states are cast in cities. Uh, and so as the suburbs shift against Republicans, states like Arizona and Texas, uh, which are giant suburbs, effectively uh, shift very quickly. 
at the same time, you know, Donald Trump did manage to wring more uh, votes of whites without college degrees uh, out of the upper Midwest, and that's what kept it close. Uh, he mm. carried Mahoning County, which is Youngstown. I never in my life thought I would live to see a Republican presidential candidate carry Mahoning County, much less in a year where he looks likely to lose the presidency. Um, so, you know, th there are some big shifts going on uh, on top of an electorate that, that kind of a map that looked kind of stable uh, for, for a few years, for a couple decades. Francesca in Kent, Washington. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Francesca. Hi, how are you? Thank you for doing this tonight. It's really needed. Um, I'm just calling because I've been really worried about the um, postal service uh, slips that were ignored, ordered and then ignored. And as a citizen, I am kind of worried about where those um, 300,000 um, votes may go and what can we do as citizens to to get those out? Thank and you. And to write my, uh, my congresswoman or... Yeah. Dale Ho, let me give that to you from the ACLU Voting Rights Project. And could you explain it a little bit for our listeners? Some people have, some people haven't heard this story about a judge's order for the U.S. Postal Service to sweep, I think was the word, 300,000 ballots that were being delayed en route to various places, and the Postal Service ignored them, but maybe it had a decent resolution. What can you tell us? Sure. Um so there are a number of cases that were brought against the Postal Service over the last few months, um, concerns that some um, changes in policy there would result in a slowdown in delivery of um, um, ballots to voters and then back from voters to elections officials. Um, the case in particular that um, um, the question was about is one where there was a hearing the day before the election um, um, and an order from the court for the Postal Service to do a sweep of ballots that had been delayed. There was, um, you know, in the week leading up to the election, the Postal Service, I think only on one day, had sort of met what it itself deemed an acceptable um, 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 delivery duration for um, ballots. Um, to, to, do, to conduct a sweep um, through Postal um, 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 Service offices and... Um, um, you know, uh, locate these ballots that appear to have been um, delayed unduly. Um, the, the Postal Service ended up not really doing much in, in response to that order. And there are a lot of questions about whether or not there's good faith compliance by the Postal Service that I think are going to have to be answered in coming days. I do want to note some caution, though, about that 300,000 figure. Mm -hmm. It's been battered around a lot in the media, and it's not entirely clear what the 300,000 um, actually refers to. It may simply be that uh, a large number of ballots were not scanned um, and entered um, um, when they were delivered. Um, so it may be more of an administrative and record-keeping issue than an actual problem with late delivery of ballots. Um, we'll have to see um, how this unfolds over the next few days. And we have to take a break in 10 seconds, but the caller wanted to know if she should call her member of Congress or who to try to make sure there's an eye on the post office? I don't think there's anything wrong with ever calling a member of your Congress, uh, right. uh, with a, your member of Congress. So, This is America. Are we ready? We continue in a minute. From WNYC in New York, this is America. 
Are we ready tonight, America? Are we ready to finish counting the votes? With Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst for Real Clear Politics, Dale Ho, Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and Maria Hinojosa, Anchor and Executive Producer of Latino USA, and author of the new memoir, Once I Was You. And Billy in Staunton, Massachusetts, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Billy. Hello, everybody, and uh, hello, America. I think after this process, what we're going to come to realize is that the process worked itself out perfectly. Uh, even during COVID, where a lot of people were, you know, advised to stay home, they mailed in their votes, uh, many people, and uh, a lot of people still went out on uh, election day and voted like myself. Uh, my election hall was less crowded because of COVID, but what I noticed was there was a lot more younger people that showed up to vote. Uh, usually in my hometown of Stoughton, Massachusetts, you get an older population voting, everybody from like 35 to 70 or 80 and there was a lot more younger people about 18 years old or 20 years old voting, and I think that's a good thing. And I think uh, at the end of the next couple of days, we're going to have a clear winner, and I think America's on the road to recovery. And I think it's a great thing that uh, people still brave the fact that COVID's affecting everybody still to get out to vote because I think we need to uh, bring this country back to some sort of semblance to uh, get the country moving in the right direction again. And that's just a comment I wanted to make, and I wanted to thank all of you for coming together on the panel to discuss this very important issue of, of voting because it's it's what America was built on. Thank you very much. Billy, thanks for calling from Stoughton, Mass. Dale Ho, I'm going to go right back to you on this from the ACLU voting rights process. In Billy's eyes, this whole thing worked pretty well. All these gazillions of mail-in ballots got in for the most part, there's probably going to be a clear winner, and turnout was bigger than any presidential election in history. So even in the pandemic, or maybe even because of the pandemic, I think he was implying, people voted and got involved like crazy. I do think it is a testament to the uh, hard work and dedication of state and local elections administrators and poll workers you know, throughout the country who really stepped up in a really challenging circumstance like the pandemic. You know, half of poll workers normally are over the age of 60. A lot of them could not could not sign up this year. And a lot of younger people um, stepped into the void. So there is a lot to be happy about. Um, the system is working. People are calm. There was there were there was a lot of concerns. You know, some one of the callers earlier referenced, you know, the boarding up of storefronts about you know, mass civil unrest, and, and turnout is, is quite high. So those are all things, I think, to be happy about. All that being said, I would not go so far as to say what the caller said, which is that the system worked perfectly. Um, just because the system held under some challenging circumstances um, doesn't mean that um, it, it, it was as strong as it should have been. Um, and there are a lot of gaps in this system, which at times really does feel like it's held together with duct tape and chewing gum that really could be improved. You know, the simple fact that we are waiting as long as we are for um, more definitive results in Pennsylvania and that we had to wait as long as we did in Wisconsin and Michigan, um, that could have been fixed quite easily. Elections administrators in both states, in all three of those states, begged state, the state legislatures there to give them permission to process absentee ballots, which take longer to count than um, ballots cast in person, um, um, to get permission to process those ballots on a rolling basis 
when they come in, something that states like Florida um, and, and North Carolina do once you get close to the election. And had Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin had had they followed that practice, um, we, we could very well know right now who the president elect is um, with a, a reasonable degree of certainty. And, and just that by itself, I think, would do a lot for people's confidence um, and sense of security about the system. Ken in Columbia, South Carolina, has a question for Maria. Hi, Ken. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, uh, Maria. Bienvenidos y un gran abrazo, comadre. I'm so happy to hear you tonight. And <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though. I, 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 do, I, actually, fan, right? I, I actually want to take a moment, uh, Ken and Brian, because actually this has been a thing you should know. On, on Latino Latina Twitter, the number of people who are angered about how few Latino and Latina political analysts are out there and being heard from. It's it's real. So so people are responding to um, to the fact that there's there's not a lot of a lot of analysis coming from the people within the community. So I, I, I appreciate your words. Ken, go ahead. This is so important to me as someone who grew up in Southern California in a neighborhood where Spanish was spoken, and uh, my mom grew up on the, in La Frontera, although, although our family is Scottish in origin, but uh, you know how it is in the Southwest, we're a blend. My question is, I have moved to South Carolina uh, the past seven years, and I've seen enormous and dramatic growth in the, in the population of people coming from El Salvador and coming from Guatemala and coming from Mexico, Honduras. I, you see a carniceria in every little town here, and it's agriculture, it's construction, and I'm not hearing people talk about, and I'm certainly not seeing the Democrats work toward reaching out and listening to that community, which is primarily evangelical, which is mm -hmm. very concerned about their neighbors and helping others, which mm -hmm. is a tremendous opportunity for community building here. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you had any thoughts or have any, 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 anything at all about the Southeast that, that comes to mind for you. I mean, I'm 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 obsessed with the southeast. I mean, right now, honestly, I'm obsessed with with Pennsylvania. But apart from that, yes. in terms of Latinos and Latinas, um, I've been reporting about the southeast um, for about 20 years in terms of Latinos and Latinas. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand that the southern United States is experiencing the most intense demographic change than any part uh, of the rest of the United States. So you are that kind of targeting where you're like, well, you know, these are, you know, Central American, they're evangelical, they're interested in kind of creating community. That's exactly what the Republicans under Trump um, and, and previously did when they started reaching out to the evangelicals in Florida. They could, the Democrats, could start doing that kind of micro-targeting for, from, you know, four years from now, but instead, sadly, and I've said this a couple of times today, hmm. they're just lazy. I, I'm sorry. They're just, yeah. they're, they're frankly, they're just lazy. I mean, I've been talking about this since 1992. And, yeah. um, and, and it just is, uh, that's why you have so many on Latino Twitter that there's this level of frustration with like, are you, are you kidding? You're really going to do this again? Even though having said yeah. that, Latino and Latina voters did turn out. And I think that is one of the, the stories that is being not being told. They did turn out. Latinas turned out in Wisconsin. They turned out in Arizona. They're turning out in Nevada. They turned out in Nevada. So um, it, it, it is there, but it is continues to be an untold story and unfocused in terms of the Democratic Party. 
lazy, Maria, really lazy rather than clueless or they don't quite No, get I it think yet? actually no, Brian, because come on, do you think that they've never heard me talking about this? I've been talking about this since 1992 that they haven't heard. No, they know this. I do because today I'm really like, okay, well, what is it's just lazy. It's just it's like, well, you know, in Florida, they basically sat on their hands. They were like, nah, we can't even do this. And it's like, are you kidding with Puerto Rico with what happened there? So it's like shooting yourself in the foot because it's just like, ah, you know, they'll come out someplace else. And honestly, it's, um, you know, we did come out. That's where it's like, it's complicated because mm -hmm. we did, because our life depended on it. Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics. One of the things I know you do there is aggregate the various polls and produce a polling average. So as not a pollster, but a watcher of polls, did we just have a massive polling failure in America? Or was that a first night narrative that looks a lot better now with more data tonight? I, I kind of have a tension between professional obligations and a uh, desire to tell the truth. <laughs> um, you know, professionally, I want to say the polls are great and you should continue to come to Real Clear Politics every day to check the polls. Um, honestly, I would say you should go to Real Clear Politics every day, but. There's no doubt that, that the polls were off, uh, and for the fourth cycle in a row now, they were off uh, in the same direction in the Midwest. Um, you know, Ohio, it looks like the polls are actually going to be worse than they were in 2016. Hmm. Um, probably true of Wisconsin and Michigan, um, maybe true of Pennsylvania. Um, and we're going to spend, pollsters thought they had this fixed in 2016, uh, when they started upweighting, uh, the responses of whites without college degrees to try to increase their share mm -hmm. of the electorate. But, you know, in 2018, Mike DeWine didn't lead a single poll for governor, and yet he is the governor of Ohio. Uh, we were supposed to have Democratic senators in Missouri and in Indiana, and they're Republican. Um, so, and now this. So I, I'm not sure where the polling industry goes from here. Um, it, it's it, it, the, the fix they thought they had from 2016 doesn't appear to have that have shown up. And another example, Florida. You know, in Florida in 2018, not a single uh, poll had uh, Ron DeSantis leading, and, and he's the hmm. governor. And the polling average had had Donald Trump losing Florida, and he won it handily. So How about we're not entirely sure what's going on. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of retrospectives. How about Susan Collins? She wasn't supposed to be reelected in Maine, was she? So Maine, I, I will give the polling, you're right, but in Maine, I will give the polling industry a pass because they have that strange rank choice voting. Uh, I shouldn't say strange. It's, it's, it's innovative and interesting, but from a pollster perspective, it's strange because you don't you, you don't have a lot of experience polling that type of question. Um, but but yes, there was a Senate miss there. Louise in Ocean County, New Jersey. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Louise. Hey, thank you, guys. Um, first, I want to say uh, good evening on this historic night, and I am Latina, and um, I I live in in, in a red in a red neighborhood. Um, there's Trump flags everywhere and so forth. And there's been a lot of like um, neighbors not speaking, and it's just like it's kind of scary sometimes. Um, and of course, you know, 
one thing with America is that, you know, we're supposed to be the United States of America, and then yet we act, you know, totally divided, um, this underbelly of racism, um, which is a reflection of tonight and why we're still going through what we're going through because it should be a landslide with, with you know, a person in the White House acting like, you know, he's God's gift to America or the world. <laughs> and yet here we are, you know, how do we move forward? You know, what does the panel advise on how can we come together and heal? It's not about white, black, Hispanic, this, that, and the other. We're all like human beings. Like how do we coexist with each other, especially uh, in the days ahead that, you know, going back to, to work and so forth, you know, it's, it's totally scary. Louise, and I'm curious if, my, uh, if you have, can I ask if you have an answer or even a potential partial answer to your own question, if you're living in a divided community like that with a lot of fiercely Trump, a lot of fiercely anti-Trump like yourself, how can you talk to your neighbors? Can you reach out to that side or do you have oh, to write no, them I'm, off? I've, as, I've tried that way before the, and what this election even came on. Like, you know, just no. Some, they're, you know, some people are just really, you know, hard set on what they believe in, even though it's like ludicrous to, ludicrous to me. You know, and to talk about certain things, you know, I try to go with what my elders said, you know, don't speak about politics, don't talk about, you know, religion and so forth, you know, but then it's in your face. And then it's like, okay, you say good morning and, and good night or whatever. You try to be neighborly, but at the same time, then they come up to you and they want to, like, discuss, you know, you know, why certain things are not on your front lawn, you know, and it's just, it's very... um the the line on as they say don't cross the line in the sand that has been like bulldozer you know like there's just no line in the sand anymore so my my thing is just to like I'm like stay away from me please you know like hello and goodbye and and you know and then now tomorrow's another day it's like okay going outside it's like now they're angry <laughs> you know some of them are going to be really angry and you know you can see that already and. You know, you you just want to just like smooth it over and say, okay, America spoke, but America really is divided, and mm -hmm. so you really can't say even even that. You know, um, so I just wanted it's, you know to know you know what what do you guys think? You all come from you. We're all diverse. You come mm -hmm. from different neighborhoods. How do we move forward That's, in the underbelly of the United States and racism, which still exists, and here we are today? Louise, and, thank you. So heartfelt and so heartbreaking. Let's go around the room, the room on this. Maria, you first. Look, I, 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 this, is, this is the thing, right? I, by the way, this exact conversation, Brian, you know, I'm a through-and-through through Harlemite, but I do happen to have a little cottage in Connecticut, and in our tiny town, um, just reveal to me, you know— it was like, it's very Trumpy. And somebody from the town was just saying, I don't know what to do. Like now, we didn't used to talk about this. Now they come in and they say these things. And honestly, I was just like, oh my God. So look, there isn't a simple answer. Um, I would, <laughs> you know, as a, as a journalist, I'm about talking to everyone. I'm about putting honey on my tongue and mm -hmm. trying to listen. But, you know, she's saying, look, it, it doesn't even work. So one, be safe, right? be safe, most important, and do what you do. Good morning, good evening. And the places when you can create a space for dialogue, try and there. 
if the door is closed someplace else, then you just be that pleasant person, but but move on. Can I get about 40 seconds from each of the two of you on the same question? So profound and bigger than any particular election result as we wrap it up here tonight. Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics. I mean, to be blunt, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I experienced this in a very different way than I think the caller did and as either of our other two panelists. You know, it's very easy for me to see, say things like see the good in people, um, you know, try to find common ground. But at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, I, I can be supportive. I can vote in a certain way. I can defend people in conversations. But but on what particular ground should be given and what should be defended, I, I'm going to defer to the others. Dale Ho from the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. You're going to get our last word tonight. <laughs> you know, asking a guy who sues people for a living might not be, <laughs> you know, I might not be the best person here to talk about how we can all come together. But I, I will say this. You know, the one thing that I think we ought to all be able to come together on and, you know, I'm heartened to see people on both sides of the aisle, um, uh, both Republicans and Democrats saying as we watch the votes come in um, that every vote's got to count. Right. We're all everyone's voice is equal, notwithstanding some of the challenges that we have with the malapportionment of the Senate and the Electoral College. That's what, you know, is the kind of bedrock principle of American democracy. And I'm confident that if we just wait for the vote count to come in, we'll have an orderly and peaceful transition. That's a good way to end. So Dale Ho, Marie Hinojosa, Sean Trendy, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time on an extremely busy night for the whole country. It's history. Thank you, Brian. And that's America Are We Ready for this hour, produced by Megan Ryan, Lisa Allison, and Zach Goddard-Cohen with Jason Isaac at the Audio Controls. I'm Brian Lehrer. You can also find me on my daily call-in show, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time at WNYC.org, or sign up for my free podcast called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Thanks a lot for listening this hour to America Are We Ready? <laughs>